0: welcome to a new edition of the neon jazz interview series with portland oregon native new york based jazz drummer towner Gallagher. he opened up with the show about his new 2023 cd the towner Gallagher organ trio live we got into his life as an educator and retiring after years in public education an early Art blakey live show his love of jazz and so much more this new project is his fourth as a leader and was recorded at a private event for intimate friends and family at daddy jackson new london connecticut during the lockdown. He's got a great story, a lot of stories. Enjoy this interview. Hi, Downer. it's Joe Domino.
1: Hey, Joe, thank you so much, man, for having me on your show.
2: Absolutely, my pleasure. Great to meet you, and I appreciate you taking time out. At
1: my pleasure, completely, man.
2: So, before we get into your album, The Organ Trio Live, I want to know with COVID, you know, it was a rough time for musicians. A lot went into it this last three years. How did you survive it? How has it changed the way that you conduct things now? That is
1: an excellent question. So, you know, I would say uh, being a person who's going to turn 68 next uh, Friday, (laughs) uh, I've learned, you know, uh, not just from COVID, but from many things in my life, patience is a virtue, something that my mother pounded into me (laughs) probably hundreds of times, you know. And, um it also uh because i had two daughters um i worked for 21 years in public education so i retired in 2019 and uh you know i was expecting just you know to go full blast with the gigging you know i remarried in december that year to a lovely woman from kenya uh who actually was in kansas city last year uh but um you know, all this to say that it was kind of like a cruel joke when March 2020, everything was shut down, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, well, actually, this opportunity came up, uh, at Daddy Jack's where we had been gigging somewhat regularly, uh, to come up there and, uh, you know, uh, do this performance for a small, intimate audience. And they had a, uh, recording engineer there. So, um, You know, I was delighted to do that and uh, just kind of, you know, bided my time. And I keep, you know, woodshedding and practicing and, you know, being patient. But uh, things did open up. But it was brutal for, you know, not just musicians, but all artists of all forms. I mean, Broadway, you name it, whatever it was, you know, uh, but musicians for sure. You know, that was uh, really brutal, but uh, we're coming out of it, and it's all about just looking forward to the future.
2: So talk to me about what it means to release an album now after going through all of that.
1: Yeah, okay, so, uh, yeah, so, 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 uh, you know, I started, I I made my first CD actually literally on my 50th birthday. Uh, It was called Panorama, and I made another CD three years later exactly to the date. And my third CD, about three years later, in August of 2011, and had some fantastic players on there. That third one was the first one I did with an organ, which featured Pat Bianchi. Uh, So, you know, it was exciting, and I was writing most of the music myself and drumming and being the producer and everything like that. And then just because of the, the financial aspect, you know, I was kind of like on hold for um, a little over a decade, about 11 years, so I could release my fourth CD. So this is very liberating for me, I would say. That would be my first word of choice and exciting, you know. And I just saw it today, it's we're already number 82 on the Jazz Week chart, so we're in the top 100 and climbing. We've gotten, within two days after the CD was released, we had seven reviews. And I was just told a few days ago that we're going to be featured in the July issue of Downbeat Magazine, the Holy Grail, you know, for jazz publications. So it's thrilling. It's exciting, you know. And I'm glad that I have developed Perseverance in my life because it's definitely paying dividends.
2: Wonderful. Yeah, to get into that mecca of a magazine, that that sounds like everything's taken off. So and it sounds like, too, you know, I know you have a career in public education. Sounds like everything kind of started late for you, but let's go to the beginnings of your life, born and raised, and how the seeds and the beginnings of jazz began for you.
1: Absolutely. That's a great question. So I was born in Portland, Oregon. I was fourth generation Oregonian. My great, great grandparents came out and before the Civil War, I covered wagon and so forth like that. So I was very much a native, you know, Oregon, Oregonian. Uh at a few, about a month, no, two months before my ninth birthday, I watched the uh, Beatles Hunt, Ed Sullivan. And, you know, at the end of the second song, the, I remember the camera zoomed in on Ringo and something went off like an electric shock or a light bulb in me. And I, I said, that looks so cool. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that's what kind of kicked it off. So, you know, like everybody else, I grew up with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Then when the Hard Rock, The Who, and Hendrix and Jeff Beck came along, I jumped right onto that. And then when I turned up, like, 19, uh, I was started switching heavily into, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire, Stevie Wonder, Soul, Funk, stuff like that, you know. And then I encountered a great mentor, Mel Brown. He's a drummer. He's still active out there in Portland. And he was a jazz drummer, but he had made his living playing with the Temptations and the Supremes and later in the uh went on to tour with Diana Ross when she was at her peak. But he he was uh, uh had you know befriended Philly Joe Jones and and who was a very serious jazz musician and he had a drum store and he had you know the whole wall of pictures of uh, Thelonious Monk and Art Blakey and you know so I, I started listening uh, seriously, to jazz from his influence, and actually, his he he made his uh, recording debut with uh, organ trio, an organ group, Billy Larkin and the Delegates. I think he was about nineteen or twenty. That was his first. He made you know he was in that band before he went on to play with Motown and so forth like that. So I had a connection to the organ right from that as well, you know. And uh, then uh, one day. I was walking through what they call Old Town, Portland, and Art Blakey, who was not at a really high point in his career at that time in the 70s, was playing a very small little jazz venue, and there was an afternoon thing, and I just, you know, grabbed a ticket and walked in there, and I sat literally about two and a half feet from his (laughs) hi-hat. And I became a convert right there. I mean, those are kind of like, you know, I don't, you know, uh, I don't know if it was a mystical or whatever, just, you know, uh, experiences that are life altering that just seem destined to happen. And so, you know, uh, I, I started really getting into uh, Max Roach and Art Blakey and later on, of course, Elvin and Tony and, you know, uh, got into jazz like that.
2: Wow, that's a great story. Was Bobby Watson on stage?
1: Uh, no, but I, I did see him in later incarnations. And then uh, there was a Sunday jam session run by this drummer named Ron Steen who's still doing it out there. And I used to go down there to try to hone my skills playing straight ahead jazz. And I was, it was my turn. I was up on the stage, and Art Blakey was in town. And Donald Harrison and um, the trumpeter, his friend, um, uh, what's his name? Um I'll oh, well, think of it a second, but they they came in and they jumped up on the stage and they were jamming, blowing their brains out. Terrence Blanchard, you know, and then later on, decades later, Donald Harrison played on my third record. But at that time, he was about 25, 24, 25, playing in Art Blakey's band, you know. So that was another great experience. But really, coming to New York in 1986 was the watershed you know, moment for me. And I really, you know, uh, well, I met Mike Clark, who played with Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters, but I'd played with Woody Shaw and all these great people. He was a, amazing and still is straight-ahead jazz player of the baddest, you know, um, you know, degree. And, you know, he really, really solidified my commi- commitment to go 100% into the jazz, uh, you know, category.
2: Yeah, I love Mike. Yeah, he's a great cat. I've had him on the show a few times,
1: and he is, yeah. I just saw him with uh, uh, Eddie Henderson like a week and a half ago, and it was brutal. It was awesome, and what a, what a fantastic band. And Donald Harrison is in that band as well.
2: So let me ask you this. You know, you've been around quite a bit. You You talked about New York, and you've been on stages all over the place. What was the stage that you got on that you always dreamed that you would play on? Like a a kind of arrival moment for you where you had to almost pinch yourself and say, wow, this is happening.
1: That's kind of an interesting question. I don't know if I could immediately come up with a, with an answer for that. It probably wasn't like some uh, giant, uh, well, actually, no. Okay. Here, here's what it was. So when I was doing my master's degree in studying composition and arranging at Queens College, uh, yes, this is a perfect answer for that. So um, Hillary Clinton was coming. Uh, there was a thing where there were six places in the United States that were going to be de- designated as these very important African American landmarks. One was a f- uh, first, one of the first black churches in the you know in, it was in somewhere in New England, and Louis Armstrong's home was going to be officially created into a museum, and that was one of them. So there was this big event at the Colden Center. And they brought out these charts that Louis Armstrong had a big band in the nineteen forties. And nobody had played these charts in over something like thirty or forty years. And we were given the privilege to play these charts with the Queen's College big band who I was the drummer with. And so um um uh what's his name? Uh Hendrix, a guy who played, was in Hendrix Lambert Ross. He he sang, and Arvell Shaw, the bass player who had played with uh, Louis Armstrong for 25 years in the All-Stars, played bass. Whit Marsalis came up on stage, and uh, so that was it. I was on this huge stage. Not only that, but in the audience was Tito Puente, Max Roach and, uh, you know, Jimmy Heath and um, Lionel Hampton, you know, who I actually spoke to several of them after the show. Max Roach asked me if I was on the college staff there. I said, no, I'm just, you know, and he complimented my playing. That was really thrilling. So I would say that was definitely uh, the the moment.
2: So you've been around a lot of big players, legends, luminaries, veterans in your life, and you've been an educator. What did you take from those individuals that you were around and ultimately give to the younger people and students that exist that were in your classroom that you taught? What did you teach them from what you got from the elders?
1: That's a fantastic question, and I wanted to actually touch on this because uh, I use the word mentoring or mentorship is such an important part of any endeavor, but in music, it's very important, and I feel it's, it's slipped tremendously in the last several decades, and I've had long discussions with Lenny White and Mike Clark about this. They have very strong feelings about this, you know, but back then, you know, if you go all the way back, it was all about apprenticeship and mentoring and all the great musicians that stood on the shoulders of the other people. It was all about that. You know, so, for example, when I was teaching, you know, uh, I would, uh, first of all, I mean, I taught band, so I had to learn all the instruments on some level. But if I was teaching a kid clarinet or trombone or trumpet or anything, I would ask them, tell me who's the name of a famous trumpet player, you know, whatever instrument they had chosen. And, you know, uh, 97% of them couldn't think of anybody. So yeah, I would tell them, to you know, I'm giving them some suggestions, but also tell them to research it, you know, because, um, well, for example, when I was about 15, I was taking drum lessons in Portland and uh, mm-hmm. Count Basie must have been in town because Sonny Payne came into the drum shop and he knew my teacher, Dick Hall, and he came in, hey, man, they were giving me high fives and everything like that. And then he sat down at this drum set that was, on, you know, for sale in the front room and just played this ridiculous stuff that, I I mean, my jaw was on the floor, literally, you know. And so it's important to be exposed, you know, uh, best of all in person, but secondary through videos or something like that. The people coming up have to be exposed to people, high level people on these instruments, so they could, first of all see what the possibilities are, right? But I also taught That's music cool. appreciation. I would I would do things. You know, I would teach them about people like Louis Moreau Gottschalk, who Roland Han and uh, Roland Hanna taught me about. You know that it, m- most people don't even know who he was. You know. And you know all these other people. I would I would teach him about Ray Charles. I would teach him you know uh, about Mahalia Jackson. You know, and I would do little uh, two or three page you know uh, excerpts on the people that were the top pioneers in the different. And I taught him about all the different genres of music as well. So
2: I'm curious in this long journey that you've been in music between educating, performance, putting out albums. What has been the most enjoyable part of being a professional musician for you?
1: Just, you know, the childlike purity. I was reading something just yesterday. that was talking philosophically that a person that maintains the heart of a child throughout their life is really the winner, you know, and and be a person that will stay forever youthful. And so that that magical feeling of me when I saw Ringo Starr on the Ed Sullivan Show or Sonny Payne, you know, playing those, those inspirational things. Or my first experiences playing even with my high school friends, who would, some of them were very, very good. But just that electrifying feeling of, of your, your, you know, cl- locked in and clicking. And, and I wanted to talk in relationship to my album, too, about two important words chemistry and telepathy so those are kind of things that can never be taught in a music school but when you feel those things when you're playing music it's priceless you could never put a price on those feelings and you know i was thinking actually there's a a funny lyric from a dr john song where he's doing a little rap in the middle of the song and then the end of the rap concludes with he says this is a line of work i could hardly recommend but it's too late. I'll be doing it to the end. And when I heard that, I said, "That's me, a hundred percent." So you know, like me, like every other musician. I mean, I played uh, w- uh, with uh, um, Fred Wesley. Played on one of my CDs, and he has a biography. And he went through the entire roller coaster, you know, from the highest highs to the lowest lows. He experienced it all, you know, and he's doing great now. Uh, but my point is that you know. A music career uh, is not usually a steady path, and there's all sorts of, you know, peaks and valleys, but it's that initial passion and just love for the music that is what, you know, uh, sustains me, and I'm sure probably like minded musicians. So, as somebody that's a practitioner or an educator of this idiom art form known as jazz, why do you love it? The creativity. The creativity. I did three um, off-Broadway or, or, you know, semi-Broadway shows, you know. And, uh, yeah, like somebody said, it's like kind of like Groundhog Day or something. Like, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're reading the April 20th version of the New York Times for the 750th time. You know what I mean? Um, You know, you can't, you you know, some people, I know I have friends And I respect and admire them. They've done it for over 30 years. They just go from one show to the next show to the next show, you know. Uh, But, yeah, I did a show in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, Forever Patsy, about Patsy Cline. And uh, second to last night, I had one line in in the – uh, where they asked me a, a question because we were on stage and i was so bored i just decided to stand up and deliver the line rather than sitting down and i was called into the office after the show and yelled out why did you do that you know and then so with the whole thing of jazz of course you know it's just like life you never feel the same way from day to day you know depending on the weather or what happened in your personal life So it's like the the bad weather report. That's how they, you know, it's sort of like, you know, we're playing whatever we're feeling is a reflection of us at this moment in time. You know, you're not in a top 40 band where you memorize your parts and play them, you know, the same over and over every night. You know, there's the creativity, you know, to just, uh, uh, yeah, the creativity is, you know, this is what it's really the big attraction about jazz and you know, like Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter said uh, in a book called *Reaching Beyond*, uh, they said, you know, jazz is really a music of freedom, and there's something very true and profound about that. You know, absolutely, 100% agree.
2: Wants to get their hands on your organ trio live album or learn about live shows? Anything about you
1: previous recordings? Where can they go?
2: Where's the best place?
1: Yes, so that great question. I appreciate asking that. First of all, uh, the, the CD is now on Amazon as of about three days ago, uh, and some other uh, record outlets. I'm currently working on the digital, uh, you know, distribution, which I should have together within a week or ten days. That'll be coming very shortly. Though my previous albums are already on Spotify and iTunes, and and so forth, and things like that, you know, Uh, but, um, and as of today, I just hired a person to uh, do my new website, I had a website years ago, but I let it, uh, you know, fall by the wayside, so it's going to be in about two weeks, countergallaghermusic.com, and of course, it's important, a lot of people confuse my last name with Gallagher, but it's just G A L A H E R, Gallagher, com. My website will be up and running, you know, I'm sure within like two weeks. And like I said, the digital thing, you know, is coming in a very, very short period of time, but uh, it already is on Amazon.
2: Well, Counter, this has been wonderful, man. Thank you for taking time out to, to talk about your life and music. And it's great to meet you, man.
0: Luck I them. loved
1: all your questions. They were all really spot on, man. And thank you so much. Thanks
0: for tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in Portland, New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Towner for his time, energy, and cool. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to us at YouTube. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time.